Okay, um, so I'm aware I do have quite a lot to say, so I do um, ask for your patience if I run over slightly on my time allocation. I'm going to try and uh, hold it in, but uh, I, yeah, as I say, I've got quite a lot of things which are, in a way, it feels like a piece, and I have been exploring how to chop pieces off without much success, so uh, I'm afraid you're going to get the full... <laughs> Full works. Um, so uh, it's mainly going to be in the form of uh, a PowerPoint. So um, just to say a little bit about the talk, about the structure of what I'm going to be doing. So um, so what I'm going to be trying to do here today is honour what I think is a crucial relationship with what I'm describing as the embodied heart. So I'm going to be doing that through looking at uh, uh, this uh, archetype, the lover archetype, and looking at how that might be uh, influencing how we function in our roles as chairs. So I'm very briefly going to place that uh, particular archetype in relation to the other three that uh, some of you will be familiar with has already been mentioned it's the magician uh, warrior and monarch rather than yes so um those are the archetypes that it's connected to and i'm going to connect those very briefly to the four myths um having done that i'm going to be suggesting that primarily uh, the work is um in attending to the activity of loving is primarily a movement down into our embodied sensual experience. And that this, through this downward movement, invites us into the doorway or to the doorway of this embodied heart. And through that, this invitation into the archetypal realm which is constantly blossoming, blooming out of what's sometimes described as the open dimension of being, or shunyata. Having kind of done that prelim, I'm then going to talk a bit about the heart in relation to the wheel of life, and from there, then finally get to look at the archetype in relation to us as, uh, in our function as chair. So I'm just going to start with a poem. Do not try to open your heart. That would be a subtle movement of aggression towards your immediate embodied experience. So never tell a closed heart it must be more open. It will shut ever more tightly to protect itself feeling your resistance and disapproval. A heart unfurls only when the conditions are right. Your demand for openness invites closure. This is the supreme intelligence of the heart. Instead, bow to the heart in its current state. If it is closed, let it be closed. Sanctify that closure. Make it safe. Safe even to feel unsafe. Oh, trust that when the heart is ready and not a moment before, it will open.
Like a flower in the warmth of the sun, there is no rush for the heart. So trust the opening and the closing too, the expansion and the contraction, for this is the heart's way of breathing, safe, unsafe, safe, unsafe. This brutal, beautiful fragility of being human and all held in the most perfect love. Okay, next one. Thank you. Now, is that... So very briefly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but as you'll be familiar with probably by now, we have uh, this description of the four myths, and uh, I don't want to say anything about those, that would be a kind of separate talk, but I thought it would be worth just mentioning that the relationship between the uh, four myths and its relationship to the where I see the, the archetypes that we've been exploring, uh, or certainly in the January meeting and this meeting, so we have the warrior, one could see that connects very easily into the development myth, magician, as we talked about in January, this, uh, of discovery, the monarch, in terms of surrender to that vertical connection, and lover, I think, sits quite squarely in the emergent end of the, uh, in, within these four myths. Okay, so just uh, to say that these, um, how we relate to and perceive each of the myths, but also these different archetypes, how they, uh, how we create a dynamic relation to them, is important not only for our kind of own progress and development. But it's also very helpful to, I think, understand the, the sense of these uh, myths uh, and archetypes in relation to our uh, collective practice. So this uh, diagram here. So my main thesis really is about uh, that the lover archetype or the lover loving as an activity uh, is dependent upon this descent. So just a few words to start with is that obviously needing to distinguish between love uh, rather than pema. Uh, so that this is the love I'm talking about is not demanding or sticky. So the activity is really infusing awareness with aesthetic appreciation. You've been familiar with uh, Fante's uh, fantastic uh, chapter in Wisdom Beyond Words on the Greater Mandala, 
And this really, this talk, or this section of it, comes from uh, Bhante's uh, text on the, the Great Mandarin. So love has no agenda. It makes no demands on ourselves or others or the world to be in any particular way. Love is wholeheartedly curious about what's here. So it's really exploring the fine texture of what is known. But also it is curious, it is constantly opening, releasing into what is uh, trying to feel, into what is emerging at the edges and those in-between places between us, amongst us. So love is honoured and nurtured by this conscious act of descent into the sensuous body. So love is not a, uh, a disembodied, constructed fantasy. It's a feeling, it's a sensuous experience. Meta, love is a sensuous experience. It manifests within the sensing body. Love is appreciative and it's really uh, sensitive to the nuances, the texture of this energetic of field of sensations within which we find ourselves. And uh, as Banti suggests, it's also playful, it's curious, it's resonant, it's responsive. So these are all states that are referred to in this essay, The Greater Mandalay. And nothing emerges through this downward descent into the senses rather than standing above them with some sort of willful expectation or discriminatory hopes that we overlay onto our experience. And there's that lovely image of the, uh, the guy sitting by the river without any hook on the line. So we simply, in this loving mode, we're simply sitting by the river uh, without uh, agenda, without trying to hook something out of experience. So this spatial uh, metaphor of descent, it also helpfully places the gateway to the archetypal realm, realm within the sense field. So what we call the heart is really an intermediate space. It's not connected directly to this physical heart, but it's sense an internal space of some mediating space within the body. So the heart is simply what we describe or we can call a liminal space within the core of our sensate body. So limin is the Latin for the stone lintel that is inserted into a wall that allows an opening to be established. So the heart is this transitional space, something like a doorway or a window that invites us into a level of knowing that condenses our sensory experience into meaning without us needing to lift up and out into conceptualization. So it's meaning without lifting up. 
And in this heart space equally, we are creating a space through which we have the glimpsed revelation, the direct knowing, which can uh, condense into the sensate experience. So we perceive and we receive direct knowing of meaning through our intuitive, our responsive sensing and liminal heart. So it's the embodied heart, the heart space, that knows the archetypes that include the Buddhist pantheon. It's also the embodied heart space that knows those beautiful moments of crystalline simplicity and wholeness, which are described as suchness or thusness, which which can be seen uh, as being known, realised, within this transitional space of the heart, between the sensate world and the ever-blossoming ground of potentiality, which is always arising, always emerging through being, into being. So the open dimension of being, shunyata, however we want to describe it, is actually right here at the very ground of our sensual being, our sensual experience. So... I thought the, uh, the next thing I'm going to address um, is that the wheel of life, right at the centre of the wheel of life, is this precious liminal heart space. It actually sits right here at the very heart, the very hub of the wheel of life. And it can be really easy to demonise these forces uh, that are actually... Uh, protecting that precious heart space. So as we try to manage our wounds of abandonment, overwhelm, disorientation, this uh, they tend to manifest into what we describe as the poisons. And I think that, uh, that derogatory term really uh, takes away the vital strategy of protection that we've all uh, had to, to learn. So my sense is that healthy access to the lover archetype, it relies on us knowing and to have gratitude and sympathy for the armouring which we carry around our hearts. We need or it's encouraged... I think it's important that we encourage ourselves to really see that armouring, to feel it, to witness it, but of course not to be defined by it. Because the more that we can explore the territory of the heart, or the the protection around the heart, it allows that armouring to become more porous and for what it's protecting to begin to emerge into life. So, I think it's really important that we express gratitude for this wonderful adaptive armouring that we carry around our hearts. 
So as we have arrived into this world, this body, we carry within us, we each carry this tender, open heart space. And we sense that it needs to be protected for its own sake, but also for our own survival. And this protective relation to our heart is the driver, really, for the whole of our adaptive learning that we take up, that we pick up uh, as young beings. And I'm aware that this could be a whole talk on itself, but I thought it was important to uh, uh, just comment here that I think we really need to, we have to engage with this level of our being, sympathise with our patterning, to really know what did we learn to hide or what did we learn to abandon and how do we make sense of that abandonment and overwhelm that we've experienced? What did we do with those experiences that were just too threatening, too shattering to hold in consciousness? What defensive patterning from within the family, within the society, did we mimic to keep ourselves safe? What views shielded the heart from being with its own vulnerability, its own responsiveness and natural wisdom? And what of the sense of carrying the unresolved pain of our ancestors, our ancestral limit, uh, lineage, that we've absorbed like nutrients into the belly, into the very cells of our body? So unless we uncover, become familiar, express and honour, uh, express uh, gratitude to this armouring, how else can we find our way to sit in the space of the heart and become porous to each other, become porous to the world, this beautiful, painful world, and all this arising out of the blossoming out of Shinita. So this is, I realise this is impossible to see in this light, so just to say that what this is is a picture of the wheel of life very quickly. So this is just pointing to the wheel of life shows, reveals that these defences around the heart manifest in infinite different forms ongoingly. And as we can see from the image, the tragedy is that these protective defences tend to lift us up and split us out from the sensory world. If we look at uh, any picture of the Wheel of Life, we'll see that there's this enclosed system sitting out and above the world. And through that splitting off, we lose this precious ground of embodiment and communion through which liberation is naturally uh, revealed. So we liberate through descent a descent into our human experience, not through splitting ourselves out from the world, making ourselves somehow remote, aloof, spiritual beings above the world. So it's beautiful, it's fragile, it's poignant and painful to live this human life. It's challenging to be here entwined in both this, the beauty 
and the, the pain of being embodied in this world. But where else really can the Buddha Mandala manifest apart from right here? It is inherent within uh, being here in this life, in this world. Check, make connection with troubles. I've got my reading glasses. I can't actually see you very well when I'm uh, with these on. So looks as if you're mostly still here. Good. <laughs> Good. Let's carry on then. Okay, so we're finally getting here to the lover archetype itself. So with that preamble, can now see that, um, well, that the... These different ways of the, the lover archetype manifests, these different modalities of the heart, as we could describe them, will af- uh, affect our capacity, our ability to in- uh, embody, uh, honour the embodied heart. So the move towards becoming fully embodied develops our ca- uh, capacity to mediate the lover energy in a way that serves this uh, relational space, this relational life. When we don't have healthy access to that energy, to the lover energy, or we get lost within it, it creates distortions that will impact on this, our relational life. So I'm just going to now move to the kind of heart of the talk, which is looking at these three modalities... So it's the addicted lover, the impotent lover, and the embodied lover. So these three modes, I'm going to have a look now at how they will be, uh, may impact on our lives as chairs. Okay. So this addictive modality of being. So more uh, in general first, and then I'll talk about it in relation to the, uh, the chair role. So the addictive modality of this lover ode- uh, archetype is that we haven't been able to, we haven't managed to find a secure and appropriate container for our natural sensuality. By chasing peak experiences, what we're doing actually is uh, obliterating, we're masking this uh, internal sense of absence, this uh, fragmented inner life. So we need strong, sensual peak experiences to, uh, to overlay onto that... Um, uh, that internal structure. So, of course, uh, I'd love to talk to you about pornography for the next half an hour or so, but I'm not going to. But I think it's kind of an important area. I think also, uh, well, the many addictions that we kind of uh, can find ourselves bound into 
I think uh, this uh, seems to be that we kind of get lost in this, uh, in this pursuing the peak experiences as a way of not dealing with this inner absence. And one of the ways that we do that is that we kind of lock onto particular aspects or fragments of our experience and we're unable to kind of hold the whole of our experience. So we'll become very identified with particular aspects of our experience. And uh, I think for me, maybe for others, uh, there is within this addictive modality a sense of some, on some level, feeling disem- disempowered or controlled by forces outside of our own experience. And the final thing, more in this sort of more general introduction, is that we struggle to separate out and stand in a healthy relationship to uh, to others. So the addicted chair, the chair as addict, what we do, uh, what I do, (laughs) maybe others do, um, if we had this kind of within our uh, aspect, how we kind of function, we we may find ourselves struggling to establish or maintain structure. And we become very absorbed, identified with particular intense personal connections within our community. So we choose to really focus on one or two members of the Sangha and we kind of get our worth, our value, or we get our mirroring, our reflecting from those elements within the Sangha. But we lose that border capacity to be in relationship to the whole. So we have difficulties uh, also within Sangha is that we will probably find ourselves identifying with a particular aspect of practice. So those four myths, we'll probably be, find ourselves, if we've got that addictive uh, quality in our experience, we may find ourselves uh, going uh, towards a particular uh, aspect of the system of practice, uh, sorry, the four myths, uh, and losing that broader capacity to, to see them as interconnected, interwoven into a whole. And with our individual contacts as well, we may find ourselves identifying with a particular part of a person, certainly thing that we enjoy seeing them manifest, uh, but find it much harder to see them in their wholeness, in their fullness. And um, this activity, the way we engage with Sangha, unfortunately it smothers our internal sense of, of absence, of loss, that we kind of push ourselves out into the world seeking those uh, strong experiences to avoid having to sit with this absence, a loss, a sense of lostness within us. Within this, as the addict, what we're really doing is we're pursuing oceanic experiences that 
merging, that union, that oneness with, with, our, with others. Uh, which is a very different experience to being able to stand in and alongside uh, members of the Sangha. So if we're simply seeking to merge with the Sangha rather than helping them become more individual and uh, become fully themselves within the Sangha, we risk uh, creating difficulties. And uh, as an addicted chair, we may find ourselves, um, when we get called out, when we discover that there is a a difference being exposed, that we are not a kind of oceanic whole, when we get called called out on that, we might might find ourselves reacting with outrage and wishing to punish those dreadful people that are pointing out this kind of sense of the wider sangha for a sense of the importance of perceiving the whole rather than getting lost in partial experience. The final thing about the addicted chair is that we become over-identified when we get lost in the lover archetype. We fall out of balance to the other myths. So we become lost in emergence and we lose the need for uh, the kind of structures of, of the path, of the sense of uh, discipline, structure as a means to hold or contain and work with the lover energy. Okay, uh, just checking again. Uh, (laughs) It was important. Because I, I do want, I want to stay with it myself, and I'm aware I'm kind of passing out probably quite a lot of information, which I've kind of been brewing for a while, so it's, um, I'm aware it's quite a lot, so nobody's completely collapsed into a blob as yet, so just <laughs> thank you for your bearing with it. So, the next thing I want to talk about is this, the lover archetype, uh, when it becomes distorted by this sense of impotence, the impotent modality. So the impotent modality, uh, in more general terms, is that we tend to be quite listless and reliant on external structure to maintain our life direction. So uh, the wonders, one could say, of institutionalisation um, is one of the risks of, uh, or one of the ways that the impotent modality may appear. But also, uh, within, when there's this sense of impotence present, there can be a, a sense of a real lack of uh, energy or vividness in people's being, in their embodiment, their expression of their lives. And also, what's really striking is there's an inability, if asked, is to name what they actually feel. There's a sense of complete uh, splitting off 
from what they actually feel. So they're cut off. The impotent lover is cut off from the sensual life. And within it, we have these tendencies towards passivity and regimes of self-denial or self-improvement. And the impotent modality also seems to give rise to a semi-submerged anger or resentment that comes out sideways. It's unable to manifest cleanly, uh, fully in the moment, so it slips out sideways in our relationships with others. That's probably enough on that. So let's see how that does when the impotent chair is to the fore. So as an impotent chair, the tendency will be to rely on external structures to fulfil our role. And there will be a reliance on formalised relationships to help us... um, Uh, moderate, uh, give appropriate form to to our responses when engaging with others. Um, There's a sense of that we can become slightly uh, set in our role, in our function, so speak, uh, engaging with each other on the basis of the functions that we perform within the Sangha, which Uh, keeps us kind of safe and remote from a more intimate and more natural human place of engagement. And we are reliant on conceptual frameworks to make meaning. So this is not to say we don't need these things, but it's when we become over-identified or over-reliant on the conceptual frameworks. And there's a tendency towards passivity and wanting to maintain a status quo. Kind of keep things exactly as they are as the means to not risk uh, stepping out of that safe ter- territory of impotency. So this uh, primarily all comes out of a loss of connection to our sensual responsiveness the lover archetype is absent. So we're absent and therefore, of course, it it will be throwing out our balance to the other myths. So finally, we come to the last one. So this is the lover archetype fully embodied. So the lover archetype is living from within this rich mulch of sensuality. That we are in our sensual experience, living out of that and not knowing to understand. We don't need to understand. We can trust in that responsiveness that arises out of that that ground, out of that mulch. So we don't need to understand, we simply really need to fully know what is our current experience. 
And there's a real absence of fear and shame of being embodied, being within our bodies. The love archetype, fully embodied, has the capacity to play. It also has the capacity to, con- uh, to question conventional limitations and any dogma that is currently a uh, sense of being imposed upon one. There's an openness, an open, aesthetic appreciation to what is here. And through it all, we have this sense that all appearances, everything that is arising here, is emerging out of... I'm going to use this term, I don't know whether I've got time to... Just, the dark sun of Shunyata. So, <laughs> so we have this surface world, this world animated, kind of brought to life by uh, the, the planetary sun, the daylight world. But within our experience, when we drop into our embodied experience, those internal sensations those internal knowing is actually illuminated by a dark sun within that experience. So it's a very different way of knowing our life, knowing our world. Okay, so next one, thank you. So we come to Honouring the body as honouring the lover archetype in our function as chair. So we have this, just this wondrous world of manifestation. Just this. There is nothing beyond this current experience. This is where our life is uh, happening, arising out of. So because of that, it uh, feels, as chairs, it seems so important to welcome every being, every appearance within our community. And welcome them with a sense of curiosity. I think uh, we've hopefully moved on from the sense that we have these empty beings, these empty vessels that turn up at a Buddhist centre and we kind of fill them up with um, kind of the Buddhist tree ratna view of reality. It feels so different now in that everybody who comes in actually has got a huge wealth of experience. It might be kind of not very formulated or not very um, kind of coherent as a whole. But in my experience, most people that turn up into a Buddhist centre these days have been on apps for years or months. They've kind of been doing a lot of reading, a lot of investigation. So they're not empty vessels. So it's very important that we welcome people and just discover who they are, what they might be bringing to our sangha, to our community. And alongside that, there's a a kind of encouragement to uh, encourage wholeness. So recognising that to become, uh, to join this community, this Sangha, 
this order. We're not asking people to lop pieces off themselves. We're not encouraging people to squeeze themselves into particular shapes of being. There's an encouragement, I hope, towards wholeness and allowing that wholeness to um, manifest what the order will become. So it means that the order isn't something fixed, it's constantly emerging, taking new life, new form, as each new individual joins our community. And of course, uh, it won't come as any surprise that we really emphasise, I think as an embodied lover, we're emphasising the relational that actually what's really important is what arises between us, not in any, any one individual. It's usually in dialogue, in communication, in conversation, where we not only know ourselves, but we know something fresh, something new emerges into the space. So the relational life is <coughs> uh, key, central to a healthy sangha. Um, and it honours the liminal this emergent space that we are trying to facilitate uh, as chair, as lover we are facilitating a liminal space that is why we are recognising what is becoming alive what is growing within and through our sangha through our community and partly we do that by maintaining and building sacred space. So this sense of the mandala being a space uh, in which we can step and find our own place uh, in terms of our relational life to the whole. And that relies on having at the core of it uh, a centre, the image, the, the values that we hold Uh, described as going for refuge that connection if you like to the monarch is key to uh, actually creating sacred space I think it's also about uh, trying to embody, trying to um, master this capacity to be a porous container. So if our heart is defended, as it will be, we have to find a way of coming in relationship to that adaptive patterning that we're all carrying to knit, to know what it is, what's the sort of shape of those defences, and allow the heart, the responsive heart space to live or kind of move through that uh, move through those defences. The defences have to be porous. If they're uh, Teflon coated, there is no real way for this embodied relational heart space to, to manifest. I think that's probably enough. So, uh, yeah, I think I'll probably leave it there. I think um, just to say that the last thing is that I think it's so important that we hold these the four myths of our system of practice 
in dynamic poise with each other, but also these uh, different qualities, these different archetypes. Also, we need to become familiar with them to be able to hold them, those different ways of being, relating, uh, so that they are in a working dynamically within us, through us. So last slide, please. I can't really see it. It's the mudra of fearlessness. So I think really the main thing that I think we give as a lover is the fearlessness to be fully ourselves and fully encourage, facilitate others to become wholly those selves. That's certainly my wish for the Sangha and wish for us all.